2: Westeros, Episode 2, A Song of Innocence Welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere here in Boston, and joining me from England is York Boy.
1: Hi, and thanks for tuning in for our second episode today.
2: And for the next hour, we'll be taking a special look at Sansa Stark.
1: And to start, we're going to focus on Sansa's relationship with Arya and also Sandor Clegane. Then, continuing on from the last episode with Arya, where we touched on the themes of mercy and identity, we'll examine how Sansa embodies those themes, as well as some of her parallels with her sister. We're also going to offer a detailed Sansa theory from the mind of Lady Gwyn, and take a fresh look at the snowcastle scene.
2: And today we also have our first special guest at Radio Westeros. Brash Candy, one of the co-hosts of the Ponda Player Project at Westeros.org, will be joining us a little later on. We're excited to welcome our first guest and hear about what is, in our opinion, one of the best collaborative projects in the Song of Ice and Fire community. So get your lemon cakes ready and join us.
0: Hi, I'm Rash Candy. I'm representing the Pond to Player trend at westeros.org, and I'll be joining Radio Westeros later on. So stay tuned.
1: So before we get into more advanced territory, we're going to give a quick overview of Sansa and her situation.
2: Yeah, so Sansa had quite a privileged upbringing at Winterfell, dreaming of handsome princes, fairy tales, and had a rather idealized worldview, which is understandable given her situation and the people around her, like Septimordain, being encouraging and even molding her for this special kind of future.
1: But reality bit Sansa hard, beginning with the demise of a father.
2: It really did. Her world was turned upside down so quickly. Her belief system and personality suffered an onslaught beginning very early on.
1: And Georgia said in an SSM that Sansa still carries the guilt of what happened to Ned. She made a naive teenage mistake when she sided with Cersei over her father. This naivety is linked to her being groomed to be a lady and also her age. And she obviously had no idea of what repercussions might follow.
2: George actually said that. No single person is to blame for Ned's downfall. Sansa played a role, certainly, but it would be unfair to put all the blame on her. But it would also be unfair to exonerate her.
1: Right, so it's an early test for Sansa's character, and to an extent, her fans. And since that moment, she has truly suffered, hasn't she?
2: Yeah. The death of her father, the fracturing of her family, Arya presumed dead, Rob and Kat dead... Bran and Rick reported dead.
1: And Winterfell's been taken.
2: Right. Joffrey's abusing her, and a lot more besides. A lot more. Right. She's been a hostage for so long now, really a pawn in everyone else's schemes, yet so often she acts with kindness and compassion she has no control over her own life for the moment, she still somehow manages to affect others positively, as we will be discussing.
1: So, no doubt to the surprise of the author, Sansa has become one of the most controversial characters in the A Song of Ice and Fire canon. Fans seem to be as passionate in their devotion as they are vocal in their disparagement.
2: We should say that we find her to be a fascinating character, whose arc we believe will have a profound effect on the outcome of the series, and that her development from naive girl to sophisticated young woman is a triumph of subtle writing, which illuminates the theme of personal growth in ways only a few other characters match.
1: Yeah, there's lots of subtlety to Sansa in how she's written, a lot of things that might be missed on a first read. She's a resilient character who is often presented in contrast to other characters, notably her sister Arya, Sandor Clegane, and Peter Baelish, all of whom we'll be looking at here. Running through her interactions with these and other characters, we find Martin's familiar theme of identity.
2: Sansa's identity becomes increasingly central to her arc, not unlike her sister, though in a markedly different way.
1: So, as mentioned, let's now begin our look at her parallels with her sister and how this theme is woven into them. (laughs) Radio
2: Westeros So a lot of readers tend to see Sansa and Arya as complete opposites.
1: That's right. But opposites don't always have to be in conflict, though. Complementary interpretation is possible. And it's suggested by this quote from Ned.
2: Yes, this is great. Sansa is your sister. You may be as different as the sun and the moon, but the same blood flows through both your hearts. You need her as she needs you.
1: So, the Sun and the Moon are certainly very different, but they can also be seen as complementary bodies, can't they? They occupy the same sky and move in sync with each other. And Perhaps that's what Ned is trying to say here.
2: Yes, absolutely. Then there's another scene where their differences seem obvious, but on closer inspection, their actions are actually very similar, in fact, parallel.
1: That's right. In the set of Baylor scene, with their father about to be executed... Aya sees Sansa on the steps with the Lannisters, and she wonders why Sansa looks so happy. And the reader knows that Sansa has used her gifts, her courtesy and pretty words, in an attempt to buy their father's life, and she thinks she's successful at that point.
2: That's right, yeah, here's the quote. As it please your grace, I ask mercy for my father, Lord Eddard Stark, who was Hand of the King. She had practiced the words a hundred times. Then... King Joffrey looked her up and down. Your sweet words have moved me, he said, gallantly, nodding, as if to say, all would be well. I shall do as you ask.
1: So Sansa's courtesy, which we know she calls a lady's armour, is in full play here as she attempts to shield her father from the Lannisters.
2: Yeah, that's right. On the other hand, Arya's reaction is much more aggressive, and as we've come to expect, her instinct is to use violence as a protective measure.
1: Yes, when Arya realises her father is about to be executed, she threw herself into the crowd, drawing needle.
2: At first glance, these are two very different reactions to the same
1: situation. Yeah, opposite reactions.
2: Right. Sansa is accommodating and sensitive, and she attempts to create a shield for her father, while Arya, who's belligerent and headstrong, wants to use her sword to defend him. But on closer examination, they're actually doing exactly the same thing, they're using their individual talents in an effort to defend or save their father's life. Their talents and actions in this situation are complementary, their objective, however, is the same.
1: Yeah, they want the same thing, don't they? It seems clear that these sisters, who were created as foils by George, have a lot more in common than meets the eye, and it's a theme we'll come back to again.
2: Take a look first at Sansa's relationship with Sander. When Sander enters her chamber after fleeing the Inferno with Blackwater, he demands the song she's promised him at knife point. We know that just previously, Sansa has prayed for him in the Sept, and we have a quote.
1: Sansa says, he is no true knight, but he saved me all the same, and this is talking to the mother in her prayers. Save him if you can, and gentle the rage inside him.
2: Right, so we see here that she sort of views him as a saviour figure. We know that in spite of him not being a knight, a true knight, as Sansa always says, he's the only true protector she's had since her father's death.
1: This might actually have been foreshadowed early on in Game of Thrones when Lady was sentenced to death.
2: Yeah, King Robert told Ned, get her a dog, she'll be happier for it. It may just be significant that moments after Ned killed Lady, Sander Clegane rode in through the castle gate.
1: So, get her a dog and she'll be happier, and in walks the hound just after Lady's death. That's a nice catch.
2: Yep, it's just something you might notice on a reread. So, there are several examples of Sander protecting Sansa through Game of Thrones and Storm of Swords that we could look at. First, there's a scene in the throne room where Joffrey's having her beaten for her brother's crimes and the Hound attempts to intervene.
1: Yeah, we have a quote, the Hound rasped enough.
2: Right, he tries to stop it, even at the cost of speaking against Joffrey, which we know is a dangerous business.
1: Yeah, it certainly is.
2: Yeah. And then, of course, there's the well-known scene during the bread riots when he saves her from the mob.
1: And another quote, Sandor Clegane canters briskly through the gates astride Sansa's chestnut courser. The girl was seated behind, both arms tight around the hound's chest.
2: So the mob was trying to pull her off her horse and Sander went back for her and ended up killing a man to protect
1: her. Yeah, the hound killed him, says that.
2: Yep. And then there are a couple of scenes where he straight out lies to protect her.
1: Yeah, we've got two, haven't we?
2: Yeah, the first one is Joffrey's name day tourney, where um, she says something desperate to avoid being punished.
1: Yeah, and the hound, again, rasped is the word. <laughs> the girl speaks truly. He's protecting her here, isn't he?
2: Yeah, he knows that she's lying, but he wants to save her from Joffrey's rage.
1: So Yeah, avoiding punishment. Right.
2: And then on the first occasion that she sneaks off to the godswood to meet with Ser Dantos, she gets caught coming back into the castle. First by the hound, and she tells him a lie, and he doesn't buy it. And then by Sir Boros, who's on guard that evening. And Boros questions her strongly. She tells him she was praying for the king in the godswood. Now, Boros doesn't believe this, but again, the hound supports her.
1: Yeah, he says, you expect her to sleep with all the noise. And again, this is Sandor just protecting Sansa.
2: Yeah, he's lying, using his gruff manner to sort of warn people off.
1: So Sandor has established himself as Sansa's champion of sorts after a month in King's Landing, which brings us into our first reading of the show. This is Sansa and the Hound on the Night of the Blackwater.
2: You promised me a song, little bird. Have you forgotten? she didn't know what he meant. She couldn't sing for him now, here, with the sky a swirl with fire and men dying in their hundreds and their thousands. I can't, she said. Let me go. You're scaring me. Everything scares you. Look at me. Look at me. The blood masked the worst of his scars, but his eyes were white and wide and terrifying. The burnt corner of his mouth twitched and twitched again. Sansa could smell him stink of sweat and sour wine and stale vomit, and over it all the reek of blood, blood, blood. I could keep you safe, he rasped. They're all afraid of me. No one would hurt you again, or I'd kill them. He yanked her closer, and for a moment she thought he meant to kiss her. He was too strong to fight. She closed her eyes, wanting it to be over, but nothing happened. Still can't bear to look, can you, she heard him say. He gave her arm a hard wrench, pulling her around and shoving her down onto the bed. I'll have that song. Florian and Jonquil, he said. His dagger was out, poised at her throat. Sing, little bird. Sing for your little life.
1: So that was Sansa and the Hound in that quite tense and emotional scene.
2: Yes, and of course, this is the scene that precedes the famous Unkiss, Sansa's possibly faulty memory. Of a moment with Sandor that never happened.
1: And the song she chooses to sing for Sandor is the gentle mother song, which echoes a prayer for Sandor early in the sept scene.
2: Yes, we referenced that earlier. The line in the song soothe the wrath and tame the fury, teach us all a kinder way. Uh, really is almost word for word what she prayed
1: for Sander in the sets yes. to, to the yeah. mother as well to right. the mother yeah uh, singing this song with the hound's knife at her throat illustrates how she embodies that quality of mercy that the mother represents
2: yes this theme is central to her relationship with Sander and it provides a counterpoint to Arya's mercy which is also closely associated with Sandra Clegane.
1: As we mentioned last time in our Mercy episode, if you heard that, uh, Mercy is present broadly in Sansa's Ark, for example, her effects on Lancel. If you remember Blackwater, he sustained an injury and she knelt beside him when everyone else was running off and she said, help him and Sansa commanded two of the serving men to get him to a maester.
2: Yeah, it really seemed like he was in a bad way, and if he had just been left there, it's possible that he may have died.
1: Right, and I think the next time we see Lancel, he's looking like a post-Ramsay Theon. He's, He's white and his hair's white, and he beams when he sees Sansa. And a bit later on, when he's talking to Cersei, He says that the mother spared me, bearing in mind it was Sansa that really saved him.
2: Yes. So in that moment, she embodied the mother. Her mercy really shone through.
1: So Sansa's mercy obviously had a profound effect on Lancel. And she also shows this uh, quality of mercy to her cousin Robin during her time in the Vale.
2: Yeah, that's right. She does time and again after his mother's death, she fills that motherly role for him, at the same time maintaining an attitude of patience and forbearance that we know from her inner point of view is really difficult at times. In this sense, she really does seem to embody some of the merciful qualities of the mother.
1: Right, I think it's time for some music from the fandom now, so here's Latomi with Sansa's hymn.
3: Gentle mother, of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows, let them know a better day.
1: was Latomi with her song Sansa's Hymn. It's a really impressive production all round. I think you'll agree. And I really love those vocal harmonies. Really nice voice.
2: Yeah, it's really lovely, isn't it? It captures the spirit of the hymn. And of course, many thanks to Latomi for giving us permission to use it here.
1: Yes, thanks so much, Latomi.
2: And if any of our listeners know of any Song of Ice and Fire theme music that needs to be heard, email us at radioesteros at gmail.com.
1: Okay, up next is a Sansa theory. This one's from Lady Gwyn and a co-conspirator, Milady of York, posted as part of the Pawn to Player project. It centers around the hound's bloody cloak from the scene that we looked at. It was a popular one, was reposted and reblogged around, so let's go through it.
2: Okay, thank you. You know, when Sander leaves her chamber after that scene, uh, he leaves behind his bloodied Kingsguard cloak. Uh, and when Sansa finds it. She shelters beneath it.
1: Yeah, it says she found his cloak on the floor, twisted it up tight, the white wool stained by blood and fire.
2: Yes, that's how that scene ends. Um, We do know that she keeps the cloak, though.
1: Yeah, in Storm, she had his stained white cloak hidden in a cedar chest beneath her summer silks.
2: Yes, and then we hear no more about it. But when she departs King's Landing after Joffrey's murder, she dons a deep green cloak with a large hood um, to cover the brightness of the pearls on the bodice of her brown dress.
1: It says the cloak will cover them. The cloak was deep green with a large hood.
2: And we believe that it's very likely that this is the same cloak.
1: So what are the textual hints in the books? Could you talk us through?
2: Yes, sure. Um, Let's start with the fact that Sansa is known to have dyed a spoiled article of clothing to make it usable in the past.
1: Right, and that's in game, isn't it? The scene where Arya throws a, a blood orange and the blood might be relevant later?
2: Yes, I think that is a significant thing. She's got this bloody stain on her lovely white silk dress.
1: Yeah, the quote is, the blood orange had left a blotchy red stain on the silk.
2: Yes, that was a great moment between the sisters there. Uh, Now, we do see that dress again, of course, later on in the same book. Sansa is wearing it as a symbol of mourning. She's dyed it black.
1: Yeah, that's quite a clever manoeuvre from Sansa, so she can reuse the dress She'd had them dye it black so you couldn't see the stain at all. That bloody orange stain right. wasn't wasn't a problem for her in the end.
2: That's right. So clever girl and we know, she knows this can be done. She can cover this bloody stain with some dye.
1: Yeah, and in fact the first thing we really learn about Sansa is her skills with fabric and, and needlework, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it's mentioned early and often that she's good with needlework and This is a skill? Clothing.
1: Yep that she has and, right. you know, she must use it sometimes.
2: Right, it should come as no surprise that she'd do things like this. So that part fits. And, and we could take a look at Sander's color scheme, um, what we know of it, for a few hints, starting out with the fact that on several occasions we see him associated with bloody cloaks.
1: Yeah, when he kills Micah, he had a heavy shape wrapped in a bloody cloak on the back of his horse. And then in Clash, his white cloak was torn and stained and blood seeped through a jagged tear in his left sleeve. So there there is an association there, isn't there?
2: Yeah, there is. And notably, that second quote is after the bread riots when he has just saved Sansa from the mob. And other than those references, we see Sander in... A green cloak on more than one occasion. And the
1: green is relevant because that is the colour of Sansa's cape. Right. He wore an olive green cloak over his armour in game.
2: Yes, that was at the tourney of the hand. Significantly, one of their first interactions. And another occasion when he acted as her protector, seeing her safely back to the castle at Joffrey's command.
1: And then, again in game, we have... Sandor wearing a brown doublet and a green mantle. Mm-hmm. And this is really interesting because it seems to mirror what Sander's wearing at quite a crucial moment, doesn't it?
2: Yes, that night when she is fleeing King's Landing, she's wearing that brown dress with that deep green cloak covering it up. It definitely seems to be a mirror of Sander's attire on that occasion.
1: Okay, that's some of the textual hints for this theory. And there's lots of interesting thematic hints as well, aren't there?
2: Yes, there are. The cloak is a symbol of protection, and this has been discussed often with regard to Sansa. Uh, But you have, of course, the Westerosi tradition of the wedding cloak, which symbolizes the groom taking the bride under his literal protection.
1: Protection, and there's a romantic element there too.
2: Yes, exactly. And in terms of cloaks protecting, she has actually sheltered beneath Sandra's cloak more than once. Yeah.
1: In the throne room, in the scene where Joffrey is having her beaten and she's very close to being sexually assaulted, we have the quote, "Sandor Clagane unfastened his cloak and tossed it at her. Sansa clutched it against her chest, fist-bunched hard in the white wool. The coarse weave was scratchy against her skin, but no velvet had ever felt so fine.
2: Yes, so there she is, being protected by uh, what we assume was the very same cloak on a previous occasion.
1: Right, so she has good reason to uh, associate that cloak with safety. Yes. She does. So aside from the talk about cloaks, uh, hoods are also relevant.
2: Yeah. They're frequently used in the books to disguise appearances. Sansa does this herself.
1: And they also protect, such as the Night's Watch using them as protection against the elements, for example. So all in all, a hooded cloak could be thought of as a kind of shield, both literally and also symbolically.
2: Right. Sansa is not only hiding her Stark identity, but also guarding it, holding on internally on a level nobody else knows about. So the hooded cloak could be a shield on a number of levels, including emotionally.
1: Yeah, and this is what I find really quite fascinating about this theory on a thematic level. The concept of Sansa using her needlework to create a shield.
2: Yes, and of course, Arya is well known for using her needle, which is a sword, for attack.
1: And Sansa might have used her needle to create a shield for defence, for uh, armour, emotional armour, in contrast with Arya and a sword and attacking. So the sisters do have a yin-yang thing going on, and perhaps this is a further layer to that theme?
2: Well, the very first time we see them both in A Game of Thrones... Sansa is showing off her needlework skills with her sewing, and Arya chooses weaponry and aggression over that, and soon enough, her needle is a sword.
1: Right, and in the name of balance and fairness between the two sisters, why can't Sansa's talents and her needlework also reap benefits like we've seen with Arya? So the idea of Sansa secretly creating a shield... Is really quite delicious. It's very subtle and so really befits the way in which George has chosen to write Sansa.
2: Yes, it does. And of course, the idea of the cloak as a shield really emphasizes the romance of Sanders' protection of her, um, which we see played out over and over again. And then, of course, he leaves the cloak with her that final time just after the unkiss that we spoke about. And that's quite a central scene to their relationship.
1: So there's some potentially fascinating uh, thematic dynamics going on in this theory. But let's look at the practical implications and problems. How could this have come about? How could Sansa have done it? My first question would be, is the cloak large enough?
2: Yes, of course. I mean, that that's easy because Sander is a giant man. Um, and Sansa, while she's tall, is still just a young girl, and a, without a doubt, any cloak long enough to cover Sander would be more than large enough, even... More
1: than excessive. Yes, exactly. To cut a bit off and make a hood. Right. And still have, still have some to spare if she needed it, I'm That's sure. Right. Okay, and would she have had the opportunity and the means to do this?
2: Yes. I mean, we we spoke about her well-known facility with the needle. But um, there's also the fact that in the aftermath of Blackwater, when she's getting cozy with the Tyrells, she spends quite a bit of time with them doing, guess what? Sewing.
1: Yeah, needlework. In A a Storm of Swords have the quote, they spent long afternoons doing needlework and talking over lemon cakes. (laughs) There we go. There we go.
2: So, yeah. She's, you know, it's perfectly plausible that she was uh, sewing on her new cloak at that time.
1: And the green color of Sansa's cloak seems uh, significant.
2: Yes. And of course, we already discussed the thematic significance of the green in relation to Sander. Um, but there's the more practical fact that blood stains on white fabric when washed out, leave a greenish cast. Right,
1: it's a a greenish colour from the uh, washed out blood. Right. And I'll add that green dye was probably the easiest colour to get hold of in a medieval setting because it's uh, made out of natural things, plants.
2: Yeah, that's right. Finally, the second and last time Sansa thinks about Sandra's cloak is when she's in the veil and Sweet Robin kisses her. And she recalls the unkiss, and we have a quote.
1: Yep, I have it here. He took a song and a kiss and left me nothing but a bloody cloak.
2: Right. And I see no hint there that she has lost the cloak or she's thinking.
1: No, she remembers it. It's, it's, it's poignant to her.
2: Right. So it's not um, as if she feels like she's left it behind. Um, and that seems to imply that she still has it. So since we know that she only brought one cloak with her from King's Landing.
1: yep, yeah, just one.
2: Just the one. And how do we know that? Because she climbed down a, the seawall with just a little bundle uh, wearing a cloak. So, you know, she didn't have another cloak with her. Um, the plausible conclusion is that the green cloak is indeed Sanders King's guard cloak
1: remade. Okay, so that's the Bloody Cloak theory from the mind of Lady Gwyn. What, what I really liked about it the first time um, I saw it was the subtle nature. It seemed to really fit the way Sansa's been written. And you don't see many Sansa theories, so it, is a, it was a nice surprise. And yeah, it's interesting on many levels, I think.
2: Oh, well, thank you. You know, I found that theory a lot of fun to work on. And of course, I have to give a big shout out to my friend, Milady of York, who is one of the co-hosts of the Pond to Player thread at Westeros.org, who helped me work out some of the finer details. Um, and also, of course, to her Co host Brash Candy, who is enormously supportive of this theory. Yeah,
1: they're great. And of course, we're going to have Brash Candy joining us very shortly in this episode to discuss the Ponder Player project.
2: Amazing analysis and theorizing, and great project to be a part of.
1: And where did this theory come from? How did it originate?
2: Uh, I actually originated for a previous essay that I wrote for the Ponder Player project. And as promised, we come back to the theme of identity, Um, I noticed that as she fled King's Landing, she donned that green cloak, not only as protection, as we've been discussing, but it seemed to be a symbol of hiding her identity, um, protecting her true Stark self. And this observation is where that cloak theory actually originated. We see this borne out in her chapters following her flight as her Stark identity is increasingly subjected to her assumed identity, Elaine Stone. And of course, how appropriate it will be if, as we speculate, the cloak at some point becomes instrumental in her reassertion of her true identity. Because let us not forget, she does have the hairnet of death. Concealed in its pocket,
1: so possibly the shield could become a weapon with the Chekhov's hairnet in the pocket. Could be, could be. And we've got this cape, possibly according to the theory, protecting her Stark identity from the current onslaught, and belonging to the Hound with the romantic connotations too. I think it's um, a really interesting. An enjoyable theory, and we hope that you've enjoyed it too.
2: Okay, and before we move on, here's a message from today's sponsors. This episode of Radio Westeros brought to you by Kings Landing Bakers, purveyors of the finest lemon cakes by appointment to the Iron Throne. Kings Landing Bakers uses the finest ingredients: Dornish lemons, Riverlands wheat, and butter and cream from the Reach. Guaranteed to please all, from the most discriminating noble ladies to the fiercest Martin clansmen, our lemon cakes are an exquisite treat from the capital of the Seven Kingdoms.
4: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: And that was a message from today's sponsors. And so, Lady Quinn, do you like lemon cakes?
2: Yolk boy, they're delicious.
1: Well, the ones in my fridge are all stale. I can't even give them away. Can you bake some for me and send them over?
2: Lemony, lemony, lemon cakes. You can have as many as you want.
1: Right. <laughs> and that's one for the hardcore Sansa fans. It's a quote from the Feast for Crows, in case you were wondering about us.
2: Yep, she has to bribe Sweet Robin with lemon cakes to get him to leave the eyrie.
1: Yes, she does. And okay, back to business. Let's talk about Sansa, Sandor, and Arya.
2: So we've touched on the significance of both Arya and Sandor in Sansa's arc here. But what's interesting is the fact that Arya and Sandor have their own unique relationship, Sandor himself draws the contrast between the two in Storm of Swords.
1: Yeah, at the inn, when the tickler mentions Sansa's escape from King's Landing, he notes Sansa is courteous, a proper little lady, not like a bloody sister.
2: Right. He sees the clear difference between the two, even invoking the shades of the shield and sword metaphor when he refers to Sansa's courtesy and to Arya as the bloody sister and even the wolf girl but he appreciates and identifies with both of them.
1: Yes, he does, doesn't he? As Sandor seems to bridge the gap between the two in some ways, acting as Sansa's protector, as we've noted, but also as Arya's guardian and teacher as well, during the time they spend together.
2: Yeah, there's a sort of triangle form between these three that's fascinating in its depths. Obviously, we'll have to see how this plays out
1: in future. Right, and we're pretty sure that we haven't seen the last of Sandor's influence over both girls. <laughs>
2: Okay, so we're going to conclude this episode with a look at Sansa's snowcastle scene. But for the next 15 minutes, we have something a little bit different. We hope to reach out to the Song of Ice and Fire fandom here at Radio Westeros. And one of the ways we want to do this is by inviting special guests to join us. You know, people who have made significant positive contributions and make us love A Song of Ice and Fire that little bit more. As we mentioned earlier, today we're lucky enough to be joined by one of the co-hosts of the excellent Pond Player, Rethinking Sansa project, Brash Candy. For all those who haven't heard of this project, it's based at Westeros.org and is co-hosted by Brash Candy and Milady of York and is one of the most thorough and insightful bodies of A Song of Ice and Fire analysis on the internet. It's a communal project with so far over 40 contributors of essays, theories, and so on, and the standards are very high. And these are just some of the reasons Yolkboy and I respect it so much. We'll have links to the Pond to Player resource guide in the MP3 tag and on social media. And whether you're a dedicated fan or you just haven't made up your mind about Sansa, there's something for you there. Yolkboy and I have both contributed to the project, and we love doing it. That said, we hope you enjoy Radio Westeros meets Pond to Player
1: so joining radio westeros right now we have a very special guest she is the co-curator of the wonderful from Pawn to player rethinking sansa thread at westeros.org truly one of the best collaborative a song of ice and fire projects on the internet hello brash candy
0: Hi, young boy. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, it's a pleasure to be here. You know, I'm really excited that we're getting to discuss fans in a different format than the board.
1: Excellent. Yeah, it's a new format, isn't it? Yeah. Um, So my first question, with your co-host, Milady of York, you've pulled people together to create this fantastic body of work in a fandom that can be quite divided at times. So, how did it all start? Tell us about the evolution. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, the fandom can definitely be divided. And uh, one of the first things I noticed when I joined the board was just how contentious Sansa's character was amongst readers. And I mean, every week there would be a new thread popping up where you would see lots of misinformation. And more often than not, these treads attracted, you know, kind of wild arguments, and there was very little progress being made on unpacking the intricacies of the character.
1: Right, that does tend to happen, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it it really does. And given that I had always found Sansa to be a fascinating character, I wanted to start a reread that would very carefully examine her arc. So I guess in terms of our evolution, we went from an extensive reread of all of her chapters from A Game of Thrones to A Feast of Crows, and then into the rethinking stage. And that's where we gained a lot more recognition for the detailed analysis and project work into Sansa and characters relevant to her. But you know, I should really stress that the reread is what gave us the foundation and credibility to branch into Rethinking Sansa with critical knowledge that might have been overlooked by readers.
1: Right, so a reread that kind of evolved, that's Mm -hmm, interesting. mm -hmm. And so when did you realise the potential for this to be something that could grow into something long-running and really quite vast?
0: Uh, Probably about midway through the reread stage. The atmosphere on the treads had always been congenial and serious, and we were attracting perceptive board members who were very interested in constructive Sansa discussion.
3: Right.
0: Yeah, so by the time of our final chapter analysis, this atmosphere had become, you know, cemented, and we realized that we had learned so many things about Sansa that the discussion should continue now with a more focused approach on different questions surrounding her journey. And this led to the beginning of projects featuring in-depth posts, such as the male and female influences. Mm -hmm. And then later on with critical essays, starting, I think, perhaps with the Beauty and the Beast project.
1: Yeah, and the atmosphere and tone really made the project stand out for me. And it's interesting to hear how this all came together. So I counted at least 40 different contributors to Porn to Player, Rethinking Sansa. Amazing collaboration. What were the challenges of managing such a large, diverse group? And what was going on behind the scenes to kind of keep it all together?
0: Um, lots of treks and bribes.
1: <laughs> uh,
3: I bet. Yeah, yeah,
0: lots of stalking people. <laughs> um, <laughs> seriously speaking, it took careful coordination between Milady and I, especially in the latter stages when the projects became more advanced and we needed to directly solicit individuals whom we felt to deliver the best work on a particular topic. Right. We were always very careful to design our projects in a way that clearly outlined what we wanted to achieve. and We also let the contributors know that they had our full support in terms of flexible deadlines, um, any additional resources necessary, and offering feedback and editorial help with essays. So I certainly appreciated the effort it took from real life obligations to work on an essay, so making the contributors know how much we valued their work was very important.
1: Yeah, and I think your organisation and respect for the contributors really was obvious and it shined through. Yeah. And what was it about Sansa in particular which made you want to study her more closely and focus on her?
0: Yeah. Um, from the time of my first reading, I had always deeply admired uh, Sansa's mode of resistance and the particular resilience that she showed while not losing her humanity or compassion for others. As you would know, you know that tends to be a unique capacity in Martin's universe. Mm-hmm. And Sansa constantly challenges the reader by revealing a more complex personality than one would have expected in her first introduction.
1: Yeah there's so much going on under the surface there and I think she's written slightly differently to other characters I think.
0: Yeah yeah I would agree and you know it's it's in a fantasy world but mm-hmm. there are so many themes in her art which are crucial to a um, modern-day experience for us, so I think that's important.
1: Yeah, I agree. And can you think of some of the interesting things that you learned and realized about Sansa as a direct result of this project?
0: Uh, yeah, there were lots of interesting realizations and details, uh, especially concerning some of her major relationships. Uh, but I think the breakthrough perspective that PTP really helped to advocate and legitimize was that of agency mm-hmm. and how its guiding theme in Sansa's art. And you, know, you see how agency, it really structures and determines her development. And when we talk of Sansa becoming a player, in Pontyclere, this is what we're referring to. It's that journey towards self-empowerment and a th- autonomy that will allow her to have control over her life and desires. You know, and that's, that's particularly important when you're talking about the character like Sansa.
1: Yeah, it is. And uh, Sansa is so often subjected to the will of others, isn't she?
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's her ability to negotiate with these pressures and find a way to circumvent them that has distinguished her journey up to this point. And achieving agency is as much about self-discovery as having tangible resources and allies. So, we see Sansa as being ideally poised to make an impact in the upcoming novels. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not by becoming a mini little finger and adopting his exploitative measures, but Using her own strengths and strategies to effect change. Right. Yeah. And this doesn't need to take conventional form necessarily, you know, because there's all the theories about Queen in the North or Mm -hmm. Queen Consort. You know, it doesn't need to take conventional form. And I think that's something we really highlight in the Tread.
1: Exactly. It doesn't need to take conventional form. And I think we all hope Sansa can further her control over her own life. Yeah. And, okay, of all the many contributions Porn to Player has seen, do you and Milady have favourites?
0: We do, we do. Um, There's definitely been various highlights in all the project work we've done. Uh, Milady will tell you that her favourites are my essays in the Motherhood and the Beauty and the Beast project. Uh, She's also quite fond of the Male Influences 2 project, which was co-written between us, and compared Sander and Littlefinger in relation to their impressions on Sansa. Okay. You know, she's also been quite prolific in in her output for us.
1: Yes, she has. I've seen she's done so many essays.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I hold her work in very high esteem, and, you know, I would particularly recommend her, her essay, Baelish versus Stark, for anyone who wants a detailed and really remarkable exploration into the dynamics between Ned and Littlefinger and how Sansa is set up to succeed where her father failed.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. And uh, let's see, I also think readers could benefit from checking out some underappreciated analyses such as uh, the one we had on the Sansa-Joffrey relationship in A Game of Thrones that was done by Summer Queen. And also Liana Stark's analysis of the Tyrion-Sansa
1: marriage. Great.
0: Yeah. Overall, though, you know, we're very proud of all the analyses done in the Rethinking series, and each one is worthy of careful
1: consideration. Excellent. So some recommendations from Brash Candy and yes. check out these essays. <laughs>
0: Definitely.
1: <laughs> and there's so many strong contributions, isn't there? Like we said, there's over 40 individual contributors. So you didn't just curate this project; you were an active contributor and writer yourself, along with Lady of York. Which piece of writing of your own are you most proud of, and why? And you don't have to be shy. For <laughs> <you> sure. Okay. <laughs> um,
0: I would probably go with my essay for the Motherhood Project. Uh, that was the last major one I did, um, which was called Sansa the Peacemaker maternal empowerment and the politics of peace, Uh, I felt like working on it helped to sharpen my understanding of how Martin has challenged Sansa's developing awareness, or agency as we call it, Mm -hmm. through this role, through the motherhood role, and why it's the one that could gain her full prominence in the future and critically, without having to sacrifice her identity or personal desires. Right,
3: okay.
0: Yeah, because, you know, normally Sansa is seen as the archetypal maiden figure, but Mm -hmm. her art has always been aligned with the concerns of motherhood. And that's from the time she was just a naive pawn under the Lannisters, through her gradual awareness of how she's disadvantaged and exploited and now to her active mothering of Sweet Robin in the Vale.
1: Excellent and that's really interesting and in her absence do you happen to know which of Milady's essays she enjoyed or liked the most?
0: Yes, uh, Milady has always expressed love for her uh, psychological analysis of senses on Kiss memory and her two essays, her essays that she did in the Two Faces of the Beast section of the
1: Beauty and the Beast project. Right, and as I mentioned, uh, we really respect Milady of York's work too at Radio Westeros. And uh, next question, Pawn Player wasn't known for theories. It was uh, literary analysis really, wasn't it? But yeah. then in its final iteration, it produced a few gems <laughs> by surprise. Lady Gwyn enjoyed working on the Bloody Cloak theory with Milady of York which we've featured and talked about in the episode. Uh, okay. You were very supportive of the theory. Can you tell us your favorite element or implication of it?
0: Yeah, uh, that was a very exciting uh, theory and it was quite a delight to all of us uh, who participated in Pond Player. Uh, regarding the bloody cloak, it's hard to single out a favorite element because it really attends to such important aspects of her art in general. You know, there's of course the long standing connection to Sander that ended, you know, abruptly but poignantly on the night of the Blackwater battle, and the expectation of their reunion in the next book. And then there's the relationship with Littlefinger, and how the cloak acts as both literal and uh, symbolic shield against him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's also in the cloak that we last saw the poison stones used to kill Joffrey. So, yeah. you know, it, it really connects a lot of meaningful and I would say potentially explosive material for fantasy right. story in the next book. You know, yep. and uh, just, you know, to clarify, the blood cloak theory isn't necessary for these things to come to fruition. But we believe it, you know, it's, it represents a nice symbol if Martin chose to use it.
1: Yeah, we talked in the show about the symbolic potential and also the subtlety there. And then you have two other theories on Pawn to Player, this time authored by yourself and Milady. Both of them concern the elder brother, one proposing that he is in the Vale as Sir Morgarth the Merry, and one on his relationship with the Old Gods. Was it a nice surprise for Pawn to Player to suddenly enter crackpot territory?
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: a very nice surprise and totally accidental. Uh, Milady and I were having one of our usual chats and we ended up going over that passage uh, in, in Sansa's last chapter, when she goes to Littlefinger's solar. We ended up going over that for a completely unrelated topic and that's when the details of Margoff's description jumped out. And I immediately connected it to The Elder Brother and we went about refining the details to see if it could be a viable theory. Mm-hmm. And if it's true, it's some really clever work by Martin to hide uh, The Elder Brother in plain sight because... Yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, everyone <laughs> is focused on the Mad Mouse
1: because... Mad we, Mouse.
0: Yeah, we saw him with Brienne earlier in, in that novel, so, you know... Yeah, and
1: and George often likes to hide things in plain sight, doesn't he? Yeah. And really it's, it's kind of the smartest thing that a mystery writer can do to put it in front of your face and you don't see it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. And the elder brother being in the veil raises all kinds of questions and possibilities. So we, we were very excited about those. And uh, for anyone interested in these crackpots, I'd definitely encourage them to not only read them, but to read the follow-up discussions.
1: Yeah, the discussions are always good. in the Yeah, because play, yeah,
0: yeah, because you get a lot of uh, further refinement and additional support or questions challenging the crackpot. So that it helps you to kind of... You know, focus what, what you really think about this
1: theory. Yeah, form your own idea. Yeah. You get both sides the full evidence and the counter evidence. That's right. how to kind of judge exactly. it, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, okay, a few months ago, uh, Porn to Player went on hiatus. Uh, you're having a break, aren't you? Can you tell us why that was and what the plan is for the future of this project?
0: Yeah, we are having a break. Um, you know, we couldn't, you know, we had no more money left to bribe any contributors. So. <laughs> No (laughs) No more lemon
1: cakes. There's no no more lemon lemon cakes to bribe anyone.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it came down, honestly, it came down to a lot of new material. Uh, The player has always been grounded in textual analysis, and we felt that after six reread treads and 21 rethinking treads, Sansa's existing material had reached a natural endpoint for analysis and we needed to take a hiatus and await a sample chapter or the win of winter's publishing.
1: Yeah, yeah. you can just exhaust the source material and yeah. then you're kind of looking for things that aren't there, I guess. but exactly. It's better to have the quality, isn't it?
0: Precisely. So, you know, we plan to make it back for whenever we get new chapters and that's when our reread portion of Pawn to Play would begin again. And there's some other plans in development as well that fans should enjoy. Mm,
1: okay. <laughs> I can't tell you yet, but you definitely- you can't tell us. You t- tell me later when, yeah, when we're, not we're not recording.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> she won't. Um,
0: <laughs> you have lemon cakes, I will.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll see. Yeah, I've got a few in my fridge actually. Okay. Um, when I heard you were closing the project for a while, I must admit, I felt a bit disappointed because I hadn't contributed at that point. And then uh, you and my lady asked me to write the final essay. I was really happy to participate in this project. So thanks for that.
0: Yeah, and the pleasure was all Um We were very happy to have you. You know, you and I go all the way back to your uh, Sapphire theories on the board mm-hmm. so it was nice that you got in right there at the end that was good
1: well brush candy thank you so much for joining us as our first very special guest at radio westeros uh, we wish you milady of york and pawn to We rethinking sansa the very best of luck in the future I think we speak on behalf of many Sansa fans when we say it will be great to see the project up and running once again.
0: Thanks very much, and uh, it was great being here. Thanks for inviting me. And I really enjoyed the ARIA episode, so best of luck with Radio Westeros in the
1: future. And you're a great guest, Rush Candy.
0: Thanks so much. I hope the listeners enjoyed it. Bye.
1: Boston to England From door to wall. Always going that extra mile For your satisfaction Radio Westeros. Westeros Okay, now we're going to set up the second reading of the show And this time it's Sansa and the Snow Castle This is at the Vale in Storm of Swords And the chapter begins with Sansa's dream of Winterfell, home and family
2: Yep, it says she had dreamt that she was little still sharing a bedchamber with her sister Aria.
1: Right, she's dreamt of a sister, but note that when she wakes up, she immediately thinks that she's Elaine. So we have the identity crisis going on. But this dream reminds us who Sansa really is.
2: That's right. The quote goes, this dream had not been like that. Home, it was a dream of Home. The Eyrie was no home.
1: And the Eyrie being no home to Sansa shows that at least part of her still considers Winterfell to be home, amidst the confusion of her identity issues. When she rises, the sight of snow falling on the Eyrie reminds her of home and her family.
2: Yeah, we have the quote here. Snow was falling on the Eyrie. Outside, the flakes drifted down as soft and silent as memory. And then the falling snow inspires further memories of Rob and Arya and even Holland helping her to mount her horse. And it's worth noting that immediately after the passage we're about to hear, she has a memory of playing in the snow with Bran and Arya. In this memory, they're having a snowball fight and she and her sister sort of fall on the ground Laughing and smushing snow into each other's faces. Yeah,
1: they're having fun, aren't they? They really are, yeah. This is perhaps the most positive memory of Aya that Sansa has to date, and it's inspired by the following scene. This is a short segment from Sansa and the Snow Castle.
2: The snow drifted down and down, all in ghostly silence, and lay thick and unbroken on the ground. All color had fled the world outside. It was a place of whites and blacks and grays, white towers and white snow and white statues, black shadows and black trees, the dark gray sky above. A pure world, Sansa thought. I do not belong here. Yet she stepped out all the same. Her boots tore ankle-deep holes into the smooth white surface of the snow, yet made no sound. Sansa drifted past frosted shrubs and thin dark trees and wondered if she was still dreaming. Drifting snowflakes brushed her face as light as lovers' kisses and melted on her cheeks. At the center of the garden, beside the statue of the weeping woman that lay broken and half-buried on the ground, she turned her face up to the sky and closed her eyes. She could feel the snow on her lashes, taste it on her lips. It was the taste of Winterfell. The taste of innocence, the taste of dreams.
1: So this scene is followed by the building of the snow castle. And this is something which has been looked at a lot by, by the fandom. And we're not the first people to go here, but we thought we'd give you our take on what's going on here. It's really quite a poignant moment, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. In fact, it's quite iconic in A Song of Ice and Fire canon. We're going to examine just two particular aspects to see how they relate to a certain prophecy made in Arya's point of view in Storm of Swords.
1: And that prophecy is made by the ghost of High Heart following her her dreams that she gets from the old gods, as she says. I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs. And later I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow.
2: Yeah, interesting. First, I'd like to look at the fact that Peter Baelish steps over the snow Winterfell walls.
1: Yeah, the quote is he stepped over both walls with a single long stride.
2: Yeah, and compare that with what Arya thinks the first time she beholds the Titan of Braavos.
1: He could step right over the walls of Winterfell. So those two quotes are really similar when you see them side by side.
2: Yes, I think so. And of course, we have to remember that the Baelish family sigil is the Titan's head.
1: That's right. My grandfather's shield, Peter explained when he saw her gazing at it. His own father was born in Braavos and came to the Vale as a sellsword in the hire of Lord Corbray. So my grandfather took the head of the titan as his sigil when he was knighted.
2: Yeah, interesting. And remember that old Nan calls the titan a giant. So we have a Baelish as a giant entering Winterfell. Recall that the Ghost of High Hearts imagery is often sigil based.
1: It is. uh, Examples, she has a burning heart. Uh, There's a golden stag, there's wolves, and uh, there's a trout and fish when she's talking about cats.
2: Right. So what happens next is Sansa beheads Sweet Robin's doll. You killed him, he says, and has a fit. Uh, She's so angry, she then impales the giant's head on Snow Winterfell's walls. And of course, many tie this into the Ghost of High Hearts prophecy.
1: And this is where people seem divided in their interpretation. Whether the ghost of High Heart's vision is simply the snow castle, or is it, as we believe, a red herring that might actually turn into a further layer of foreshadowing for a more dramatic future event? And bearing in mind, ghost of High Heart's visions all concern the deaths of important characters.
2: Right. And I think if we know Littlefinger's reaction when this happens...
1: Yeah, he laughs and he says that's not the first giant to end up with his head on Winterfell walls.
2: Yes, that's interesting. I think perhaps this is drawing attention to the death of a giant occurring at the real Winterfell.
1: And if this stole was a red herring, then it might be ominous for Peter Baelish, mightn't it?
2: Yes, Peter Baelish.
1: If he is the giant, then are we saying maybe his head might end up on a spike at Winterfell?
2: I think perhaps. I think we might have that extra layer of foreshadowing right there of the giant's head. Sigil-based prophecy.
1: We'll have to wait and see, of course, if the Ghost of High Heart was making a mundane prediction or something a bit more exciting.
2: Right, we will. And that's the end of our analysis for this episode.
1: Right, that's it for our first look at Sansa, a character we will surely revisit as there are so many layers to Sansa Stark. Thanks so, so much to Brash Candy for joining us.
2: And thanks to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed. And as always, we welcome your comments and continued conversation at any of our social media outlets. Contact info can be found at RadioWesteros.com and you can download and subscribe on iTunes.
1: That's right, our central hub and website is now RadioWesteros.com. It's up and running, so take a visit. And once again, we'll be back in a few weeks, this time with a close look at Melisandre of Ashai. In our opinion, one of the most fascinating and underappreciated characters. We're going to take a look at a lot of the smaller mysteries surrounding Mel, see if we can uh, give solutions we have quite a large theory about who mel actually is as in who her parents are we've got readings as usual and analysis a summary of a character and a lot more so come back and join us next time
2: and radio westeros will always be free if you feel like giving something back post a link and help us spread the word
1: And I'm Yoke Boy, and I can be found on the internet at tearsofblood.org. And
2: I'm Lady Guinevere, and you can find my Song of Ice and Fire website at ladyguinevere.wordpress.com.
1: And finally, we have to give due credit to the people whose creations have been used in this podcast. First and
2: foremost, thanks to George R.R. Martin for creating the world of Westeros that we love to talk
1: about. And thank you to the musicians who have allowed us to use their music under the Creative Commons license and with permission.
2: So, thanks again to Nine Inch Nails who allowed us to remix and use elements of their Ghosts album. To Dante Axe for the lovely harp harmony. And to Lutomi for allowing us to use her wonderful hymn.
1: Yeah, that was a great song. And there's full details of all these songs in the mp3 tag and on our social media, as well as licensing info for the music and art that we've used.
2: So goodbye, and we hope to have you back next time for our Melisandre episode.
1: Yeah, be sure not to miss it, and we hope to see you next time. Bye. Bye.